millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing... Present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, my guest is Dr. Bryant Kirkland, a classics professor at UCLA. His research interests lie principally in Greek prose literature of the Roman Empire. His first book, Herodotus and Imperial Greek Literature, examined the diverse reception of Herodotus in specifically non-historiographic texts by Greek writers living amid Roman rule, tracing how Imperial Greeks recognized a set of Herodotian intellectual virtues that informed their own ideas of authorial persona, ascetics, and ethical criticism, and enactments of Greekness. He regularly teaches a wide range of classes at UCLA, including the general education course, Discovering the Greeks, and various upper division Greek language and literature courses. In this episode, we discussed how his interest in an Episcopal prayer book led him to study Greek, conducting reception studies through non-mainstream media, and got his thoughts on teaching a course on Black classicism, and how to find complementary literature. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Great, so thanks for joining me today, and I want to jump right in and ask you what I hope will be a very, very easy question, which is, like, when and how did you get into classics and the study of the ancient world? Whoa, that is such a good question. And it should be easy, but <laughs> I worry that sometimes, I don't know, it's interesting how one day you wake up and you don't even know how you got into the middle of what you were into. I do think that as a kid, a couple things happened that got me interested in the ancient world. One of them was, honestly, that I grew up in a family was sort of religious um, or a portion of the family was. And there was uh, from at least one member of my family, an expectation that I would kind of follow his path. He was a, a minister, my grandfather. But a couple things along the way sort of led me astray. One of them was I, I went to this Episcopal school growing up and there was a chapel component and it was everybody's least favorite part, except for me, because... <laughs> 
there was this strange quality I felt growing up in Florida where it's hot and everyone wants to go to the beach and it's this vacation zone and then it's the place of Disney World and all of that. Sometimes in this strange way, going into this chapel where it was cool and dark and these priests were wearing these bizarre outfits to me. I mean, they weren't other ministers that I had seen. The, 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 the vestments were more elaborate. And the language of the Book of Common Prayer, which is the prayer book of the Episcopal Church, was transporting and kind of otherworldly to me. It's this, I mean, the, the rite that they were using was this Elizabethan rite from the 16th century. So all of this had this strange effect on me of making me feel like I had entered a different world every time I went into this chapel. One thing led to another. I ended up talking to the priest one day who had studied at Oxford and had studied philosophy and had studied ancient philosophy and he'd studied Greek. He said, well, if you really want to understand what all this stuff is about that we're talking about, you need to learn Greek. Well, that didn't happen when I was 12 or 13, but I do think that, you know, I was taking a Latin class at the time as part of the school curriculum. I think that in some way I said to myself, if I, if I want to understand the thing that my grandfather wants me to understand. I have to understand the world out of which the thing that he cares about the most, which is the church, came. I also really kind of intrigued and weirded out in a good way by how otherworldly it feels to step into the space that felt ancient to me, like speaking in these oratund, majestic phrases in the prayer book. It was like entering into a form of antiquity for me as a, a teenager in a small town in Florida. So all of this combined to create a lure and a kind of draw for me toward learning ancient languages. And then one thing led to another, and I obviously did not go down the path that my grandfather necessarily expected. But I think the short answer, and I realize I've given a very long answer, but the short answer is there was a kind of piece of the ancient world in my small town in Florida, in that church, through the language, through the rituals, through the vestments, through the architecture, through the decorative scheme and aesthetic aspects of the church, there was something that connected me to antiquity. I'd never been to Rome. I'd never been to Greece. I was drawn in, in the same way that people talk about like being drawn in by myth or by film or by art. Oddly for me, the church led me to the pagans. Well, that's not the weirdest path. I feel like that. That I've, I feel like I've heard similar story. Maybe not quite that one, but but I feel like I've heard similar things. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said. You know, uh, I think everyone's going to have their own op strong opinion on religion. But the thing to be said is that religion in it, in it of itself is a really ancient thing. It's been going on for, you know, as long as humans really have, have been around. So it's not the weirdest to assume that, like, taking an interest in something which has traditions that are so rooted in something so ancient would lead you to be like, okay, so what's the beginning of this? Where does this start? Exactly. And, and I should add that a huge part of it for me was had to do with language, right? I was good at Latin at an early age. I just found it fun I found writing out declensions and verbal conjugations to be fun. I mean, this tells you what kind of teenager I was in some ways. But there was something also about, I mean, again, back to the, the church connection, the language of that Elizabethan rite that was being used for these services included words that I had never heard in my life, vouchsafe, oblation, or even just strange phrases. Like I remember there's this one prayer that says, 
Um, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And it was the use of the word property in that phrase that caused me to sit there and say, what? And I think in some way, in some productive way, ultimately for me, as someone who went on to become, you know, what we call a philologist, a I guess, someone who has a love of the logos, a love for language or an interest in how language works, that I have to credit the experience of being in this kind of defamiliarized linguistic space as a teenager. I have to credit that with with part of the connection or, or, or with part of the sense of allure. Growing up, I would listen to the way people talk. I was aware of different accents. I was aware of different phrases that the southern side of my family said things that the people from the northern part of the country in my family never said. I mean, down to small details of like how pieces of furniture were referred to or, you know, is this uh, the is this the foyer to your house or is this like the entrance. I mean, there, or like, is it an armoire or is it a chest of drawers? I mean, um, do people say like, this is mighty good, or this is really good. Like just these small things. And I coming from these two different sides of this family, I was drawn into kind of trying to figure out, well, why do people say this that way? Why do, why do, why does this grandmother say things differently? And again, being in that church environment, hearing these words, I was like, well, what's the root meaning of oblation? What does that mean? Why can't you use another word? And, you know, when I finally learned pharaoh, the verb from which oblation ultimately comes in Latin, I was still kind of puzzled. Like, how do we get from pharaoh to oblation? This this kind of thing was like a puzzle for me. This There was a feeling of obviously very nerdy sort of adventure, but there was a feeling of discovery or adventure that okay, fine. I didn't fit in with the cool kids. I wasn't going to the beach and the parties. They should see me at the beach now. I'm really good at being at the beach. But back then, I was looking for my way of feeling like I had a connection to the world around me. And it was through those things that I said a minute ago, but also especially through language and through the use of language that I became curious about ancient literature. I think it's great. I... I have to admit, I was never super, super into the linguistic aspect of the ancient world, but I did grow up fluent in French. So I was very cognizant of language because I suppose when you're a little kid uh, and then you, your brain thinks in two different languages and the way that we construct French as a romance language is very different from English. Um, I did also take notice of the weird different things people would say and the pronunciation and all that. So I would say, yeah, I, I definitely had that in common. I did that too. Um, right down to the regional stuff. Being a kid from Chicago, I'd be like, why do you not say pop? It is not. It like, like you know, it's people are like, no, it's soda. I'm like, no, I've never used that word in my life. Uh <laughs> I mean, that's how I, that's how I could usually spot one of the Midwesterners who was either on vacation or spending six months of the year in Florida, whether they were wearing like a Michigan sweatshirt uh, or or a Ohio State sweatshirt, but yeah, the, these small differences, things like pop, or or to bring up your example of different languages themselves, right? Moving between French and English, I mean, you probably had the experience some point of like being able to think of the word in French but not English, or vice versa. And I lived in Germany for a year, and there were words in English that I forgot that I can I could more readily think of the the German version. 
or I, or, I, or I came to think of the German word as being somehow better in my head. Um, so it's, it still is something that fascinates me. Uh, and I'm not a linguist. I mean, I, I don't study linguistics the way people in Proto-Indo-European studies do, for instance. The feeling of connection to the possibilities of language um, and the way that things that I was hearing as a kid could go all the way back centuries to a different civilization and culture. That I thought then, and I still think now, was pretty amazing. I do want to segue that because it got me thinking. For Because it just seems like if you also really liked the way that language would be different and, and, and how the, like, the word you use really impacts the way a sentence turns out, is that one of the reasons that you really got into like historiography? Like when when you see Herodotus write, you know, it's unlike anything else you've read because you're like, oh, what is this? You know, it's it's um, it's kind of its own journey when you read Herodotus. But you know, for me, it was Homer. No one writes like Homer, so I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. I just have to take this in and look, and um, you know, even down to the. Uh, you know, what word does he use? What does the Greek say? What does the English translation say? Are we calling them the, you know, flaming-haired Achaeans? What are we calling them today? Is, is something bright? Is something shiny? Like, it, I, I would hyper-focus on these details. So I am curious if, like, that played into you focusing on Herodotus, because he also writes very specifically. Yeah, it did, and it didn't at the same time. I mean, I should I should throw in one important segment of my background here, which is that when I went to college, I actually was not planning on studying classics. And I wanted to study theater and English. And I wanted in particular to focus on playwriting and on acting in plays. And I took a couple courses in college in English and they were good. But one thing I noticed pretty early on is I had this feeling that just as you're saying, like these small linguistic choices by authors really mattered. In the classes I was taking, we were discussing things like character and motivation and typical sort of stuff that you might talk about in a freshman or first year English class, uh, or even a, any kind of class about playwriting. And somehow, though, it, it, it kept veering into a, a kind of conversation where I felt almost like we were gossiping about the characters, like we were talking about them in this very familiar way. To what you say precisely, I wanted really to say often in class, but why does the playwright use this word or some small thing? I felt like I was almost being too minute in my focus. And that was the impression I got from some of my instructors as well. And was around that time that I took a course on Horace, the Roman poet. And because it's a Latin course, unlike reading a you know, one whole play for a class in English, and then two days later, you're reading another play. For the Horace course, we might read one or two poems per class. So it was vastly slowed down. And it was much more in the style of the kind of thing I'm talking about, where not, I hope, in a precious sense, but in a very focused, patient way, we were working through these poems word by word, thinking about the consequences of different choices, and thinking about the resonances and the, the possibilities that different words opened up. It was also, of course, a different sort of experience because we were dealing with, to a, a limited, ex limited extent at that, at that level, but to some extent, 
the apparatus criticus, the portion of the edited text that dealt with variants and variations and other possibilities for what should be in the poem. And so this was like my ideal kind of experience that I had wanted to have in those English courses where this slower, more, almost more seemingly more appreciative sense of, not appreciative in the sense that you had to like the poem or you had to think it was saying something interesting, but appreciative in the sense where you were trying to figure out the precase or the, the value of something. Uh, you know, what is the value of this word in terms of what, what it's doing in the poem? That is part of how I got back into classics. Uh, that and taking a trip to Greece as part of a study abroad program in 2005 when I was like, okay, now I'm really a convert. But as far as Herodotus goes, this is an interesting question because you're right that there, I mean, already in antiquity, I think people recognize that there is a, a quality to the way Herodotus writes, very fetching and engaging. And it's often described in terms that I think raise as many questions as they propose to answer. What does it mean to say that a writer is charming? What does it mean to say a writer is sweet? These are the kinds of terms that you see associated with criticism of Herodotus in antiquity. And they're kind of puzzlingly amorphous in terms of how to actually define what they are. What does it mean for, like, if I say this person is charming or this author is charming, is that a good thing? Is that, what, what are they charming me into? I guess there are two things about Herodotus that drew me in. I took a course, a seminar in London years ago when I was doing my MA. I just read two books of Herodotus, book five and book seven. One thing that struck me is that, and I, I can't give you a good example of this off the top of my head, but maybe I could prove it one day, or maybe people will just have to believe me. <laughs> but there is a way that Herodotus's sentences or his stories or his logoi sometimes go where there's a kind of surprise ending, or there's a kind of unexpected effect that he can structure a sentence in such a way that there's a kind of deadpan effect that comes in at the end. Or there's this way in which he can resume uh, something that he has been talking about from which he has diverged for some point uh, for some time and he'll pick back up these kind of resumptive moves that many people many scholars have talked about for sure this is not anything original that i'm observing but i think as someone who was kind of reading sustained amounts of greek for the first time at such length that there was a kind of rhythmic almost hypnotic effect that pulled me in one more thing just thinking about your question about the sort of language. I mean, I think about this description that Herodotus has of Anacharsis, the Scythian, and how he's traveling through Greece. Apodexamenos. Well, so what does this participle mean? Uh, this could mean, I suppose, most people translate it as he's there to kind of acquire wisdom from Apodekomai. But technically in the Ionic, that, could, that form could also be from Apodeknomi, so it could mean to display wisdom. And so I remember the first time I came across this in the Greek, there's this question, like, is this an active or passive sort of experience? Is he acquiring something from the Greeks or is he displaying something to them? And I have a little footnote somewhere, I think, in my book about this, because I think that there's a kind of wonderful irresolution to this. It doesn't have to be either or. The word says something about the, the going both ways of what this figure seems to be doing in, in the text. And I think Again, you could find other examples in Herodotus, who I should say, I'm not really, I mean, I am not directly a scholar of Herodotus. I would not claim to be. I, I work on imperial Greek literature, and my book is about the imperial reception of Herodotus. But I'm kind of coming at Herodotus through other people in some ways. But the short answer to your question is, 
that there is no short answer. That's perfectly valid. I mean, you know, when you work with any ancient text, there's there's always more to it, right? People in in my department knew that I was like the Homer purist who absolutely despised anything about the Aeneid. Um, because I was just like, yeah, well, it's just a cheap copy and it's not really interesting, which isn't actually true. But the copies are the most interesting things many times. Why are they copying? What are they doing that's different? What are they doing that's the same? Why are they making changes? I have to agree with you as an early on in my time studying this material, I had a similar kind of bias. I've changed my mind about this in a lot of ways, but carry on with what you were saying. I didn't mean to. No, no. I. It's funny because, yeah, I, I would say I've grown now. I mean, definitely as a young gung-ho undergrad, I definitely was like all on the Homer train. Like, nah, um, Virgil is whatever. But no, I, I have enough friends now and colleagues in, in the field who work on the Roman stuff that they have slowly chipped away at that and... and made me see that there 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 are things um that are quite different and nice about the Aeneid. So I was like, okay, okay, fine. You've got something to it. But well, that's I mean that's one thing I also like about the field of classics. Okay. So people will say to me, I had a student come into my office recently and say, what what is the nature of research in your field? You don't have new data. You don't have and this is a student coming from social sciences. I did not get the impression that she was trying to be dismissive uh, of or, or, or attempting to denigrate the field, but she was just saying, essentially, I don't understand what you mean in your email when it says you have a research day. What is research like in your field when everything is already, you don't get new stuff for the most part? Well, but one of the things that I do like, I mean, this is true even in my personal life. If I like a record by a musician, I will play that thing until anyone who's within earshot will tell me, you have got to stop playing that record. It's driving me crazy. Uh, or if I have a poem that I like, I'll read it a thousand times or I'll I, I reread novels. I mean, I, I, I have this tendency to repeat things because there's always something different that you experience or you hear the same line that you've heard 80 times, but you've had a different kind of set of life experiences or a different set of thoughts that have been brought to your attention by a friend, or you've been challenged to think a different way or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the thing that you thought meant this means something else. And that you know, somewhere in yourself, I think that the next time you listen to it again, that that meaning is going to be destabilized. Well, same with things that I thought I didn't like. I didn't particularly like Latin literature when I read it in high school. I wasn't so taken with Catullus or the Virgil that we read myself. And I still liked the language and the the feeling of working through the the ambiguities and the the possibilities of the language. But I remember having this strange feeling. It's part of why I ended up veering toward English and theater in college initially. To, I had this feeling in high school of, oh, I've done all this work to learn Latin, but I don't actually think I like the literature that written in it. And, but I have a very different view now, coming back to it years later and having a different idea of what different literary cultures do. I think and this is something that I talk with my students about, too. Many times they want to read something that speaks to them or that they find, quote unquote, relatable or somehow has a direct connection to them. And there's a lot of what we call Greek or Roman literature is simply not going to do that. I had at some point in my own training to adjust myself to think, well, what does it mean to try to be a professional 
scholar of this material. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to speak to me personally. It took me some years to kind of get past that, that I can be interested in something, I can be passionate about something, I can care about something, but it's not the case necessarily that it's the kind of thing that I want to you know, read at night before I fall asleep. And I, I think I had a kind of naive idea about what what ancient liter- what reading ancient literature as a scholar might mean versus reading literature as just a reader and person in the world. So I think to to your point about Virgil, read Virgil again in 15 years and see what happens. I mean, it is true. It is interesting. But also that is why I think like reception studies, classical reception, and there's so many different ways are important because yes, you have the scholarly sources, you have the original source material, you can read it. And if that doesn't sway you the first time, it's very helpful to have stuff you can read that might harken back to that, but also change your opinion. So for me, I remember in one of my last classes of undergrad, my professor, we had to read Daphnis and Chloe. And I was like, oh, no, man, I, am I really going to relate to this? Like, I, this does not sound like anything from my personal life. But at all in any way so I was like I do I really you don't spend time uh just roaming around among sheep and goats uh on Greek islands and uh you know wondering when the next band of pirates is going to arrive no I mean you know when you put it like that I'm like wondering is there something wrong am I doing something wrong because because I feel like maybe that's what I should be doing and and then maybe it'll be relatable but uh no and I should say you weren't you weren't raised by goats and and you know brought up by people who you one day find anyway yeah I I understand what you're saying about Daphnis and Chloe it's it's a, a highly polished world of sort of cute artifice that can be a little off-putting yeah so I was kind of, I definitely remember reading that being like why okay I'll read it and I'll analyze it for your class sure I'll do well in it but then this is okay maybe not again but then in the years since I've taken that class and wow I took that class in like 2017 or something like that either way it was it, it's been a while and then in the meantime I've absorbed so many new stories and forms of reception that don't make it seem quite as alien as it seemed when I first read it. Now, again, still not my situation. So again, can't really relate. I I agree. I mean, I just had this experience with this new course I taught last quarter on black classicism. And I've been wanting to teach this class for a while, but I'd been intimidated by the fact that it would I would be teaching material that I don't have a doctoral degree in or I haven't studied as closely. Also, just my own positionality. I'm a white man, and I thought, who am I to teach someone like Rita Dove, this remarkable Black American poet? But at some point, I think I realized that maybe not quite in the same articulation as you just gave, but I think instinctively, I had the sense that the material that I want to teach in this class is is too important and, and it's too interesting and good. And it's it's not, this whole question shouldn't be about me. It's, it's about the material. One of the things that just came to mind and what you just said now, uh, when, it, when it comes to reception, a number of students in the course had already read the Odyssey before they took the course. Many people hadn't, and they read big chunks of the Odyssey for this course. And I think one of the things that really struck me, for instance, looking at the collage 
works of Romare Bearden and from his series from the 70s called A Black Odyssey. I should note, it's not the Black Odyssey, right? It's a, right? And so he, it's this very kind of capacious, open thing that he's doing, it seems, with even just the title, whose odyssey is this? Whose experience is this? But one of the things that my students were really keen to notice and, and really perceptive in, in describing through the series of collages is how many of the characters in the in the collage series are seemingly, if you look only at the Odyssey, seemingly the, the enemy characters, the bad characters, Poseidon or Circe or the Sirens. Part of what Bearden does so beautifully in that series is to focus the eye on these characters, often on their own, right? We, we, the visual artist is able to do something with the figure of Circe, just depicting her by herself in a way that is hard even when you think about Circe in the Odyssey, in the text, it's hard to um, imagine the same effect, right? It's like the difference between having a few lines about a character versus having a visual Im image of them or having, uh, think about it in filmic terms, if you had someone who's part of pan shot versus someone who's in close-up. And it really is a Amazing the way through the kind of visual rhythm that Bearden establishes. It's amazing how he can get you to think more sort of sympathetically with a more kind of open perspective to these characters who the text of the Odyssey would try to persuade us are the inimical forces. Well, Poseidon has a reason to be angry and Circe has desires that go unrealized. And is Poseidon even a Greek god, right? Is Poseidon really someone we should think of as coming from Africa? There are all these ways that Bearden, I think, repositions. His reception act is one often of repositioning our own feelings of alliance or fealty for certain characters and certain ways of thinking about this story and, and its contours. And that's not to say that other people don't do that. Obviously, I mean, this is a this is a repeated sort of motif in reception, this this displacement and 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 it of course it happens even in antiquity that Virgil, speaking of him again, right, can take the character who's kind of the the secondary figure in a Theocratean it'll and make that character be the, the foregrounded character in one of his own eclogues. So this is itself a kind of arguably classicizing move to some degree, this, this kind of footnoting the prior source and repositioning. But I think that in Bearden's case, for instance, and this is again, back to what you're saying about the power of reception, this is not just an academic move. There, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, sympathetic consequence to how the story is being told by repositioning the figures who in a prior version in the sort of er version that many classicists think of who in that version are the lesser or the marginal or the forgotten or the abandoned or the wronged and i think that as part of what bearden is doing in thinking about Black American identity and African American identity in recovering that sort of perspective of the wronged or the forgotten or the mistreated. There is something quite powerful about his repositioning. And so th this to me is a is a amazing and rich example of what reception can do. I mean, I think it's really exciting. And I would have loved to take a course on black classicism. I, you know, it's long overdue. But it's it's also an exciting avenue, because as we're discovering, we, we need more of this, you know, we're rehashing a lot of 
things that were kind of shoved to the side in a different era. Uh, I'm discovering more people are going back to like Martin Bernal and people are really looking at the Black Athena movement and people are like, oh, wait, this was like a thing that was talked about a long time ago that they didn't want to engage with. And then you have, you know, more contemporary movements like the Danel Padilla Peralta stuff at Princeton, who's like, no, we need to revolutionize. We need to rethink the way we're teaching it. And I had the pleasure of a few years ago, I caught like an online lecture from Emily Greenwood over at uh, Yale, I believe. I mean, everything she was saying in this lecture, I was like nodding my head, vigorously agreeing with. um, And just it was even kind of making me rethink about like my undergrad experience. You know, I went to the school in the middle of mid-Missouri where it's, it's, it's really not diverse. We did not have a lot of minorities majoring in classics at all. I was one of the only ones. So like a lot of what I'm hearing now in the discourse, it's really changing things. And it's both thanks to the fact that there's, you know, the reception of, you know, newer perspectives, on sort of the black classics movement, but also there's the more like increased criticism toward media reception as well. Um, And it's really interesting how interdisciplinary all these things are because, you know, right now we have the was Cleopatra Black argument again. And so Egyptology is going through a thing too. We're all going through it. So it's really interesting. And I would love to see more classes, not just like, black classicism but like a lot more in other ancient areas as well um i think it's long overdue i agree it's such an exciting way of rethinking a lot of the stuff that's been taught a particular way for a long time and i should really credit emily greenwood who encouraged me to develop the black classicism course and in many ways my course is modeled on a version of the course that she pioneered years ago at yale and then has taught at other institutions where she's been associated. I think part of what also is important is that when we talk about reception, we sometimes reduce it sort of conveniently to things that come after the classical body of text that we are talking about as being received. But but of course, at, at a basic hermeneutic level, every every act of reading is an act of reception. And so even the idea that there is a canon or that there is this text that should be taught and this text, which is less compelling, th- th- this is all shaped by, by various forms of reception. And even in my book, Herodotus and Imperial Greek Literature, part of what I talk about in the introduction is that the, the authors that I choose to work on in that book or that I choose to read Herodotus through are authors who in a very different way, I'm not comparing them to figures from American history who's any of the people I taught in the Black Classicism course, uh, who who in many cases suffered from various forms of really despicable modes of discrimination and prejudice. I'm not making that comparison, but I but I am making a, a very basic rudimentary comparison to the fact that some of the authors that are in the corpus of text from antiquity, at some point or another, depending on who's kind of interpreting the body of texts from ancient Greece, various authors become more or less important according to the needs of the readers making those determinations. And so a number of the authors that I talk about in my book were not so important to 
German and British and American readers in the early part of the 20th century. They were considered derivative, marginal, less important, right? Part of what I try to do in my book is to give more attention to those authors because I think they have interesting things to say. And this is, again, uh, it's an act of reception on my part to, to make that move. It's somebody's act of reception that said that you needed to read Virgil at some point, right? More than reading something else, right? Virgil's value was determined by some group of people, and then that value was assumed or or reaffirmed by a subsequent group, and it goes on and on and on. And what you're talking about with the kind of shakeup in classics has to do both with the question of what should we read, but also how should we read it, and who who gets to read this stuff? Who has historically not read this material? Who Who should be in the classroom? Who should be the editor of the journal? Who should be in these positions that have consequence and it is an exciting time and it's part of what i honestly love about working at ucla is that i'm given the opportunity to develop a class such as black classicism and there are others in our in our department the antigone course or the race and ethnicity course or course on uh, receptions of classical literature in latin america that we have a number of classes that i think speak to the the energy that's taking place in the field right now along these lines. Excellent. So I did want to ask you about language requirements since we're on this great conversation of how to make the field more accessible and and how we can change things. So I know Princeton has been sort of piloting, pioneering, shall we say, this idea of maybe making Greek and Latin optional requirements for people who maybe don't want to go on and do a graduate degree you know, is is this something that would help make our field indeed more accessible? Or is it kind of still doing people a disservice because then they really would never be able to read some of the texts as intended in the original language? I do think that I like to read fiction from around the world, fiction in different languages, or written in different languages originally. So uh, there was a time when I was on a, a Roberto Bolaño kick, right? I don't read Spanish, or at least well enough to read fiction in Spanish. And yet I claim to have some meaningful experience of reading the fiction of Roberto Bolaño or Javier Marias or Clarice Lispector or anyone who is writing a language that I don't know. So someone could say to me, of course, well, you don't, how can you really claim to have read Tolstoy or the Spectre? You don't know the original language. They, at some level, have a point that <laughs> it's true. I don't read these languages. At the same time, um, I'm not claiming to read them in an academic fashion. I'm not doing graduate degrees on these authors, etc. So when it comes to classics, uh, it's hard for me to say the only way meaningfully to engage undergraduate students is to require them to learn the languages. I think having the requirement does, and this is demonstrable, does feed into pre-existing conditions of privilege that will likely guarantee that you end up with a certain group of students over and over again. I think that at the same time, if, if you're going to have a program that has an option, say a classical civilization option that doesn't require languages, there needs to be some working into an integration in the civ courses of the languages uh, in the sense of making sure that that course content pays, I think, due attention to the difficulties of translation, to the possibilities of translation. When I teach Classics 10, for instance, which is Discovering the Greeks at UCLA, I bring in Greek to every lecture. 
I don't expect any of the students to have studied Greek, uh, but I bring in transliterated Greek into every lecture in part because it's to me where a lot of the really interesting stuff is. And it's fun also to be able to point students to contemporary translators. I think of Emily Wilson in the Odyssey who have written about the dynamics of translation in interesting ways. Students in Classics 10 are reading the Odyssey, which they do, they read portions of it. We talk about in lecture um, and in discussion how to translate the opening lines. Again, they don't know Greek, but if, if different comparisons are brought in, there's at least an awareness that this text comes to them mediated through translation. And I hope that there's a kind of lure or incentive or enticement to learn the ancient languages. But back to your uh, principal question, should it be required? Um, I think it should be strongly encouraged in the same way that anyone who, who really wants to get to know something intellectually makes the sort of effort to get as close as possible to what it might have been originally. I hesitate to endorse something that's going to re-inscribe some of the modes of uh, class privileging or exclusivity that have that have come along the way for all these years and that have presented us with the problems that Princeton and other places are trying to address. So how's that for a mealy mouth answer? Short answer, no. That's fine. I mean, I have grappled with this question ever since I knew Princeton was trying to figure out what to do with it. And I mean, I can't say as I disagree with them because, yeah, I think if you go in and you know and you discover that you are passionate enough that you do want to do more work in it and if you want to go to grad school, you're going to need it anyway, so you're going to have to take it. So you will take it. But for all the people who are like, what if I just want to major in ancient Greek civilization, not go into it as a job, but it would be a fun major to have because I can learn about the culture and other other aspects of the ancient world. I do think it's kind of colossally unfair to require them to take a language that they might not have been exposed to or had the chance to take. And if they're not going to go on and do scholarly work in it, it's just another stupid barrier. So I'm like, yes, please. A lot of times, though, it seems my impression is that people become interested in this, that, or the other because their friends are interested. Right? I've noticed this. You can try to sell a course any way you think makes it flashy or appealing. <laughs> but oftentimes... A student will say to me, oh, I took this class because my, my roommate took it. Or I took this class because my friend said this stuff was cool. I have seen the same phenomenon with the languages, that people get intrigued by what their friends are up to. What is that homework you're doing in which you're writing something, these letters that don't look familiar to me? So I think that if, if there's going to be, at the same time as I might say, one could drop the requirement. I still think having a robust, energetically staffed language program in a classics department is, I still think that's vital. Really can make the difference for people if their first or first two language courses in a major, or sorry, in a language like Greek or Latin are good courses or not. And that can make the difference for, for what they end up thinking of the whole field and how they engage with it. So yeah, it's a very yes and kind of thing for me. We'll see what happens, of course. We all will with interest uh, at places like Princeton and elsewhere, where the attempt to open the field, I think, is uh, one made in good faith and is 
I think the, the, some of these changes are too fresh to see precisely what impact they'll have. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think, you know, there's even without requiring languages, there's nothing stopping departments from having a very robust language person or people or classes. Um, and and I just, from what I've observed is people who get interested or have an interest, they're going to be motivated to try a language through other means usually it's not because it's required. So that's why I'm kind of like, to me, requiring it is a bit arbitrary because it's like, yeah, if, if if I see my friend doing Latin homework and I'm like, this would be cool to learn a very old sort of dead language, I'm going to want to do it anyway. Like, I don't care if it's required or not. Like, I'd probably try it anyway. So just because people try things on their own, I'm just like, yeah, just putting a required label on it is just a bit stupid. But that's that's my scorching hot take. <laughs> When I was an undergrad, to major in classics, both languages, you know, at a certain level were required. But I kind of backed into it. I, I started learning Greek before I actually entered into the major. And it was, again, out of not quite peer pressure, but peer curiosity. I knew people in my college who had taken Greek. They were seemingly having a good time. I mean, maybe I caught them at a good moment when they weren't getting ready for a quiz or something. But I envy the seeming access that they had to some of these ancient texts. Now, it's a whole separate issue that one could debate. You know, how close can you actually get to understanding what something in another one, all that. For me, didn't come about by means of a requirement, but I think a lot of people come to the languages in different ways. And it's certainly possible that taking away that sense that you have to do this might in uh, almost like a reverse psychology fashion incentivize it because it's right. It's not the strictly mandated thing. I mean, yes, it will take a while to see the impacts of these because these are all very new initiatives, but it'll be interesting to see. But I do want to turn to something a little more fun, which is uh, you're big into reception as am I. And I'm curious. And I, this is, this is one of my favorite questions to ask any classicist, do you have a favorite media adaptation of something ancient Greek, either a Greek play or work or epic story, or even something that's like based on just ancient Greece? I, at a very sort of basic kind of level, I, I would say that something like Anne Carson's If Not Winter, the translation that she offers of Sappho, is actually one of my favorite. I mean, so this is not a film, obviously, or some cool resetting of of an ancient set of poems into some contemporary space. But I think that something about that book and its its blank spaces, its um, the kind of generosity that the publisher gave her of allowing so much of the page to be left spare and vacant, that there is this. Uh, way in which that book somehow captures and kind of beautifully visualizes for me the absence that pervades so much of our attempts to read these ancient poets. But that's that's really not a great answer because that's not like telling you, oh, I love Jean Cocteau's film uh, Orphée or something, right? Um, you know, okay, speaking of French film, I actually like Jean-Luc Godard's film Le Mépris, Contempt, which is not a direct translation or adaptation of the Odyssey, but involves this uh, 
subplot, I suppose, or plot line in which uh, Fritz Lang, the director, is making um, a version of the Odyssey, I think. And it, this ends up playing into and touching on aspects of the main plot of that film that are a little bit kind of oblique and offbeat, but nonetheless uh, provocative and stimulating for how you're thinking about the relationship among these characters. So, but again, this is not a great answer. This is not like, you know, people who say, oh, I love David Malouf's novel Ransom, or I love the film Black Orpheus. Let me try to think of a, you know what, I need to look at my shelves for a second and see, you know, okay, this is a very conventional answer, I realize. But if you think about a lot of the poetry of Konstantin Kavafi, and especially its fixation on post-classical Greece, on this period in Greek history where for some writers or for some sort of cultural creators, there's a sense of loss of, of a kind of entropy or a feeling of <laughs> glory that has passed one by. Kabafi's poetry is obviously a kind of reception act on an idea of antiquity. And I, I had this copy a long, I, that I acquired a long time ago of Ray Dalvin's translation, which I know people will say is not the most accurate translation. And again, back to the question of what language you need to know. And here I am reading a translation in high school, well before I was ensconced into a classics major. And even though I have and now own other more accurate translations, like that of Daniel Mendelssohn or some other folk, I still find that there is something about the patterns and rhythms of the Dalvin translation that just seeped into me at an early age. For many of Kavafi's famous poems, I know it's not considered the best rendering of Kavafi, but somehow for me, it, it touched me in a personal way at an early stage of my life. And that's one of my kind of favorite books to pull off the shelf with some frequency. Man, I feel like I really should be giving you a more exciting answer about like a great film or contemporary novel. I mean, I also I love Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which in many ways is a is a reworking of the Odyssey, but with this kind of existentialist thrust in which there is no nostos, there is no homecoming, there is a lot of an awful lot of catabasis and an awful lot of kind of journeying into an idea of the underworld uh, and into a state of invisibility and cultural marginality for the main character, but it ends up on a far less kind of secure and triumphant note than one might say the Odyssey does, although the Odyssey, of course, also ends in this with this weird knowledge that we have that Odysseus won't stay at home. So, no, I don't have one. It's, it's hard to pick a favorite, though. Like, you, you, you can't, though. I mean, okay, I, the most conventional answer I'll get is some combination of 300 or the Brad Pitt Troy or even someone will try to be like edgy and then go for something kind of out in left field so so I'll get those or I'll get like a Clash of the Titans type of thing when they're like yeah I'm being all edgy and I'm like well okay cool I respect it I mean I've watched a lot of those I've avoided some of them I confess just because the aesthetic doesn't appeal to me or things that I read about them make me think I won't have a good time watching them. Um, another kind of oblique answer 
I suppose, is Michael Ondaatje's novel, The English Patient, which engages quite heavily with Herodotus. And I'm not talking about the film here. I'm talking about Ondaatje's original book, which is an exquisite novel. I mean, he is an extraordinary writer. I, I, all of Even his weakest books, I think, are still beautiful. Um, but The English Patient in particular uh, is told in this looping, lyrical, uh, a chronological fashion that itself seems to uh, pick up something of the narrative style of Herodotus with its ability to to move um, from time and place or move move among time and places in an unpredictable fashion in some ways. Um, but in particular, it's it's a novel that multiple times, not just once. I mean, I think that people usually might say, well, there's this kind of one storyline that picks up the the idea of the, or the story of Gyges and Candalis from First Book of Herodotus. But I think there are several iterations of the story in that novel, and it's a kind of uh, hypnotic exploration of jealousy and power, and uh, but not just these personal, interpersonal issues, but also the, the novel engages with broader questions of national identity, of empire, how people from different cultures relate to each other, try to control each other, etc. And um, it's a book that I've read two or three times, and I plan to read several more times as um, a fascinating engagement with the kind of global thinker that I think a lot of people, a lot of people believe Herodotus in his way to have been. So, so that might be, if you, you know, not 300, not Clash of the Titans, but The English Patient by Sri Lankan Canadian author Michael Ondaatje. I like when people take it out of the conventional. Um, I, well, it's funny because I started a, a, a another venture with a, a friend of mine who she got a, she got her, her bachelor's in classics and then she actually um, went on to, to, do Assyriology, so she's not really classist anymore. But we decided that we didn't read enough in general, but also we just like watching any kind of classical reception things. So we decided we'd get together and we would read books and watch movies and then we would talk about them together. And so then it got us reading and watching. And over the last year, maybe, I have read and watched more Iliad and Odyssey adaptations or things based on them than I've ever seen in my entire life. And I can say that what once was a very unconventional sort of favorite before I started doing all that has changed completely. Because now, after a year of taking in all these different adaptations... Sadly, my answer's gotten even more conventional, I think, because I, I would say now, like, my favorite book, reception-wise, is, is Natalie Haynes' A Thousand Ships. And I would never have said that before, but now I'm, I'm very gung-ho about, yes, this is excellent. I love it. It's amazing. So, Well, and that takes us back to what we were saying earlier about the way our view of these works can change, right, whether through rereading or through time. I mean... So I haven't read Haynes, but I, I just thought yet another adaptation that is that is newer to me that I taught recently in my Black Classicism course that I think is really an extraordinary work and worth anyone's engagement. And that is 
Rita Dove's play, The Darker Face of the Earth, which is, she wrote it in 1994, and then she rewrote it a few years later after it had been staged a few times. But it's a kind of retelling of Oedipus Rex, but set at an antebellum South Carolina plantation. It centers on uh, the enslaved characters of this plantation, one of whom ends up learning uh, too late, of course, that he is the product of essentially miscegenation of, of you know, he's, he's the son of the female owner of the plantation, one of the black enslaved persons on the plantation. And it's only after horrible things have happened that he, that he comes to this knowledge. Fascinating retelling of this story that involves not an idea of a kind of personal hamartia or a, a kind of error or mistake that a, a character makes and understands only too late. It broadens out the notion of the cursed. Far more cosmic and um, horrifying sense of the curse of slavery to begin with. And so the, the setting of the play and the kind of precondition, the tragic preconditions that lead to the moment of recognition are felt in a more profound way, I would say, historically, because they have to do with these, these large forces of bias and evil in American history. And the language of the play is beautiful. Um, the way that Dove both adapts and creates her own work of art from Sophocles is extraordinary. I, I noticed that my students were deeply engaged by this text. You can read it without much knowledge of Oedipus and be fine. It, it, I think it adds something if you have the Oedipus in the background, but I, I think it's also something that stands on its own or like many great acts of reception, both engages with and transforms or moves beyond in some ways the, the source text. So I recommend that. Again, uh, I have trouble just, I have trouble with favorites. You know, I, I, I'm not good at even saying what my favorite film or book is in any context. So all these things I've, I've mentioned in the last few minutes, they're all things that I think are valuable and extraordinary in their ways. And I like it because since you didn't go for the more conventional ones that everyone has kind of recycled versions of, um, I'm, I'm hoping that the audience will discover these new things that people don't talk about as much or didn't realize maybe were kind of a... a could be considered a form of classical reception because they didn't realize they were based off of classical material. So I, I love hearing new things because I had, I to yeah, I'd, I'd only heard of, you know, maybe two of the ones that you'd mentioned at, that I recognized as a piece of classical reception. The others, I'm like, okay, I'd heard the titles, but I didn't know what they were about. So I, I do appreciate hearing new things that I haven't just, because, you know, we talk about the same thing so much just because it's the, 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 quote unquote popular stuff um which isn't always good because the popular stuff always happens to sometimes be the the completely crappy stuff that people watch because it's entertaining but also it's crap so well i mean students are often coming to my office or coming to take classes with me because they they've, they've got some notion of what the ancient world is like from those films that you described that way or novels that might not be on the same level in my view as something like English patient. I mean, I don't expect 19 year old students who are encountering classics the first time to, to find Michael Ondaatje to be the best way to access that. That's, that's a totally different sort of thing. Um, so I, I think there is value in a lot of these mass market style 
adaptations um, because they might lead someone to say, hmm, is that really what this was like? Or is this an accurate representation of women or enslaved people in antiquity or, or any number of issues that, that might arise? That's, that's all to the good if it, if it leads people to a kind of curiosity that might allow them to question the nature of the adaptation or reception act they've seen. Um, and some people, you know, I have students who have never heard the term reception, don't even have that as part of their working vocabulary initially. And often the case that some of these more popular engagements are purchased onto or a, a window talking about what reception is, what it does, how it transforms, hybridizes, resets, alters, transcends, whatever uh, the original kind of thing. So I, I don't want to sweep those things away entirely. I just have developed a particular sensibility in which <laughs> I seem to like some of the weirder stuff. I also, it's very hard to get a hand on it, but um, Percival Everett, the American novelist, um, Percival Everett's novel Frenzy is a retelling of the Bacchae. It's very strange. I think most people don't like it. It's gone out of print. It's really a weird book, but I think because of its weirdness, I think because of the way Everett writes and tells things from the perspective of this attendant to Dionysus, uh, the novel actually does an amazing job of conveying just how bizarre story of Dionysus is, or the story of the Bacchae, or the story of being essentially the, the, the mood or the mode of being in a state of ecstasy or frenzy. I think it, there's something to me almost more accessible about that idea from reading Percival Everett's novel than there is uh, from certain portions of Euripides' Bacchae. So again, find it in a library, see what you think. It's a weird book, but I think the weirdness is part of its achievement. Great. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to go find it now. Obviously, there's so much under reception that we would be talking until we've both died of old age, which is fantastic because I love that there are that many things. But but we don't have time to melt into skeletons. Unfortunately, we still have many things we 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 want to publish and do and discover. So, I'm gonna. Is that melting into skeletons a, a Clash of the Titans reference? Isn't there a scene where the the skeletons? Uh... They don't melt. They just kind of get crushed. There there are just a couple of questions that I usually ask to end the interview portion of the podcast. And the first is when you were a student, as either an undergrad or a grad student. Did you attend office hours? Yeah, I attended office hours. And I have to say that I loved office hours because it sort of broke down some of the fourth wall between the professor and the student. And part of the reason I became interested in becoming a professor was because of the generosity of time given and kind of conversational openness that my undergraduate professors at Davidson College in North Carolina particularly the classics department uh, professors, those people gave me, gave all of us who, who kind of partook of the office hours so much uh, in addition to what we were already getting in class. So yeah, I, I got really into office hours. I probably drove my professors crazy by coming to them too often and hanging out too long. Well, I was going to say, since it sounds like you did what I did, which was hang out with your professors and drive them nuts by never leaving. Do you have a favorite memory or, you know, conversation, something that stuck out to you about one of these times that you were with a professor? You know, I had this amazing professor at Davidson named Kane Cheshire, who was my thesis supervisor. And this is not a particular memory, but it was just something that 
he would say from time to time about something when I would ask him a question. I'd come in with a question about a text or about a line of Greek or whatever, and he would say, yeah, it's intriguing. And that was what he would say about it. He wouldn't try to make up an answer. He wouldn't try to come up with uh, an authoritative response necessarily. He would open the space up for conversation with this enthusiastic voice of his saying, yeah, it's intriguing. And he would let that silence hang. And what I came to understand about these interactions was some of the questions that I was asking were questions that he didn't know the answer to, or that wouldn't have an easy answer, or that maybe it was through dialogue, through conversation, or through further exploration in the library or whatever, that some kind of answer, probably provisional, would be arrived at. And I just loved the intellectual humility of that response, combined with the feeling of excitement that he too was intrigued by something. And that was sort of you know, the beginning of the conversation. It's, it's like this notion that we get from antiquity, um, and you see it in Plato, that, that thalma, that wonder is the, is the launch point, the, the beginning of philosophical inquiry or inquiry more generally. And I think that wonder can be this two-sided thing. It's the thing that provokes you to ask how to explain or understand something. And it's also sometimes the state that you enter into when you feel that you have a reach, you have arrived at some kind of understanding. And so you can be on both sides of wonder, the, the side that is the kind of awestruck confusion that needs clarification or the side in which you think you've understood something and you're kind of marveling at it, but that itself can lead to more inquiry. So anyway, it's not a, it's not a, a one-time anecdote. It was a repeated phenomenon of going to Kane Cheshire's office hours and having him say, yeah, it's intriguing. That's great. That's great. And and now as a professor yourself, you know, if you had to give a, you know, 30 second to a minute pitch of, you know, why should students go to office hours? What would you tell them? Stump the professor. It's when you can see us really thinking with students. You can see the ways in which some of our answers become more open-ended and unscripted. Not that I walk into class with a script, but I, I plan my lectures and I generally know what I'm going to say. I don't read from a typescript, but I have a kind of intellectual trajectory that I want to follow in a lecture. Office hours are more shambolic in a way. They're more beholden to a kind of curiosity that, that the student drives. Um, when a student came to my office hours just a few weeks ago and said, what is literary theory? I mean, this is a huge question. I wouldn't have time to even try to answer that question in class, but that question can turn into an office hours conversation that goes on for an hour and, and may continue on for multiple hours in future iterations. I think come to office hours because you, the student, are more in control than you think of what takes place there conversationally. That's great. That's a great, that's a great answer. So at the end of each podcast, I typically ask if each guest will read Shelley's Ozymandias poem. And once you've read it, you know, it doesn't need to be this whole long analysis, but it's, it's meant to just be, you know, if you could give maybe a quick snapshot of what are your thoughts about the poem? Why do people seem to come back to it and, and like it? And, you know, what kind of messages do you, do you feel that, that we take from it? Because we, it's, it's continually cited as something quite influential. Okay. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ozymandias by Percy Beach Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Lots could be said. Two things jump out to me that I've never noticed in reading the poem before. What does it mean to meet a traveler from an antique land? Basic meaning is that someone has been to a place that has ancient ruins, right? That's what the poem would give you to believe. But there's also a kind of time travel element that's a little bit mysterious about that first line. Actually a meeting between the poetic voice and some person, or is this some kind of imagined meeting, uh, discussing uh, or hearing this tale from someone who's actually from an antique land, from an antique time? Is this a different kind of teleportation that's going on. It's intriguing what kind of world is being imagined. And then the last line, the level sands stretch far away. Well, what's beneath the sand? Maybe we're doing wrong by looking at the ruined statue. Maybe the thing that we think is important, the King of Kings image is actually distracting. And maybe the scrap of papyrus beneath the sand will tell us something more about human life in this antique land. Yeah, it's very multifaceted, multi-layered. The way that I usually interpret it is it's a memento mori, which I really like. And I also really like how it's a political statement by Shelley on the ephemeral nature of both political and just in general power. And 
the fact that he was writing it in this time of intense Egyptomania and because he wrote it about the statue that was coming from Egypt and it was being shipped to the UK and he wrote it and was very inspired. So many things can be said of it. The colossal wreck, despite being a wreck, still speaks. And Shelley's meditation on it, again, an act of reception, revoices the thing that is putatively lost. So there's both a presence and an absence at the same time in the poem is kind of mysterious and fascinating. Thank you for bringing it to my attention again. It's been too long since I've looked at it and such an amazing short poem. It is. And so the last question I ask all guests is if you consider our modern society right now, do we have a modern equivalent? of an Ozymandias, something that we think uh, we thought was amazing and great and will live forever. And I don't know. Will it? Well, let's see what happens with the internet. <laughs> I wonder if all this kind of unplugging movement that one reads about, you know, teenagers in Brooklyn giving up their iPhones. Will, will connectivity be our Ozymandias? I realize that's the very thing that's allowing this conversation to happen and so much to happen. But what, what kinds of community do we sort of reflexively take for granted now that maybe we could reimagine and will cause us one day to look back and say, look at that king of kings that we made such sacrifice to. It's just a, a ruin now, colossal wreck. I don't know. I'm very bad at, I would never be a good sort of like cultural commentator, op-ed writer for church of what's happening now sort of publications that that need a quick hot take on something i don't know the internet is a great answer though because it's true i mean everyone says don't put it on the internet because it'll be there forever well the internet technically is a couple of big massive servers locked away in like silicon valley and if those were to meet disaster then it's all gone everything so it's not really permanent but it seems like it so I think it's perfect. Sure. That's my five second answer that I'll change 10 minutes from now. <laughs> well, I like to leave both guest and audience thinking about what they think is the best modern Osmanius, but I like the internet as an answer. It is a fantastic one. And I kind of lied because there is one more question I'm going to ask you, which is where can people find you and your work if they want to, you know, come to UCLA, take a class, ask a question about a book? Well, sure. Anyone can take you know, any UCLA student, of course, can take a class with me at UCLA. My book, Herodotus and Imperial Greek Literature, is published by Oxford University Press. It's available from Oxford's website. My webpage at UCLA, which has links to academic articles I've written, I can't say that they're the thing that everyone's going to want to devour on the beach this summer. It's not that kind of reading. It's it's scholarly stuff. It's a different mode from other kinds of writing. If you're interested, it's there. Certainly people can email me to make an office hours appointment if I'm available. And I'm always happy as is evident from being on this podcast to talk about antiquity and its way of staying present in contemporary lives. Great. Well, we will make sure to have all the links to your faculty page and other things available so people can uh, go forth and indeed find you. But thanks so much again for, for joining me. I mean, it's been a, a real pleasure to to chat about cool reception stuff and always a good chat about ancient Greece and all these wonderful things. So thank you, Lexi. Great that you're doing this. Thank you very much for thinking of me. It's 
I'm honored to be your guest. It was fun. Of course. Well, we hope that uh, at some point we can have you back. I'll have different answers for every question. Just ask the same questions and I'll have different replies. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.